Greetings, troubled listeners, and welcome back to the Troubled Men podcast. I am Renee Coleman, sitting in my safe house on the line with my co-host, the original troubled man for troubled times and future mayor of New Orleans, Mr. Manny Chevrolet. Welcome, Manny. Hey, buddy. What's happening with you? Oh, you know, uh, just uh, kind of... Uh, recovering from the, the shock of, uh, of all the, the news yesterday, the, uh, the storming of the Capitol, the, uh, the, the, well, the, did the you, violence in our Well, our did you capital. expect anything different? I mean, I knew that was going to happen. I mean, what was, there, what was the surprise about? I mean, you knew that was going to happen. I mean, well, I figured there. they'd they'd be uh, they'd be out in the streets, you know, uh, embarrassing themselves. But uh, I, I didn't expect the president would actually have a rally and tell everyone go march on the Capitol and uh, and and have all of his minions saying things like uh, yes, let's have a, a trial by combat and <laughs> you know and have them actually uh, break in and uh, and trash the halls of Congress. Well, I think about four or five weeks ago, I had said that, you know, he was going to either get the military or his followers to uh, upset, you know, create violence and stuff. And he didn't use the military because there was no way he could do that. But he incited his followers to do that. I was not surprised at all by it. What I was surprised at is that how uh, I mean, it's been talked about, I guess, for the last 24 hours is how uh, there was no security. Uh, at all whatsoever to uh, stop this and these people uh had been hanging out for days now hanging out for days they knew they they were on their way yeah 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 so um you know it is what it is and uh but the thing that i you know that uh i was watching i didn't want you know i had to work but i saw the news and uh i watched all the highlights on all the different channels, you know, I try mm-hmm. to, uh, I try to watch all the channels to get a, you know, cause you know, one channel is going to be one way. The other one's going to be another way and stuff like that. But all the footage I saw with all the four major networks and the, uh, the, the four or five major cable networks, the one thing that I could not stop looking at during this whole thing, uh, I couldn't keep my eyes off the fashion. The fashion was just amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I just could not, you know, from the flag poles to the headgear to the mask gear to, to what they were wearing on their pants and shirts, I just could not keep my eyes off the fashion. And you know me, man. I go way back. I'm, you know, I, 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 love, uh, I love cool looks from, you know, the Rat Pack suits. To, uh-huh. the, to the hippie <laughs> bell bottoms, to the 80s, you know, hairdos. Uh, but to me, this, you know, I'm now a very old man now, but I just could not keep myself looking at the fashion. It just was amazing. Yeah, they they have a look about them. That's for sure. Yeah, a lot of yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the QAnon oh. T-shirts, the the American flag uh, 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 do rags. Yeah. The Confederate flag do-rags. Yeah, and, and, and the hairstyles from the men and women. You know, it seemed like the women had more beards than the men. And uh, <laughs> I, 
I, I just could not stop looking at the fashion during the whole destruction of our of our of our uh, nation's capital. You know, right? Um, so, it, you know, I knew this was going to happen. But what the thing is is now, two weeks from now. Uh, when uh, the president-elect gets sworn in, are they going to have it outside in the nation's capital? I don't think it's a good idea. I really don't think it's a good idea. Because now, I mean, yeah. these protesters got in, uh, uh, these Trump supporters got in, and they're very lucky that one of them didn't have, like, you know, a, a bomb strapped to their vest. I heard there was Molotov sure. I heard there was Molotov cocktails and these guys were wielding, you know, uh, uh, sabers and swords and bricks and all that. But they're very fortunate that this, uh, there wasn't one crazy guy enough to, to kill himself, to blow himself up for his uh, fearful leader, you know? Sure. No, it certainly could have, would have been possible, you know, with the, the again, that's, you, you have an administration who, who is not, in, on the one hand, they're telling them to go do this. So, of course, they're not going to activate the security to keep them from doing it. It's all a, you know, it's, it's all a coordinated effort, you know, keep, keep, keep the, uh, the security low, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's a whole thing, man. Yeah. And you know, I, I hate the gadgets and the social media and, 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 and people, I remember when, uh, uh, Steve jobs died and everyone said, Oh, Thank you, Steve Jobs, for doing what you did. And I, I said to myself, fuck you, Steve Jobs. You have, you have <laughs> fucking done this to us. I mean, this is so easy now. He made social networking and the gadgets and all that stuff so easy for some fucking neo-Nazi in Idaho to hook up with some fucking KKK guy in Alabama. And these guys hook up and they say, let's meet in Washington, D.C., and let's try to destroy everything down. Anyway, I, that's the whole thing I've talked about before. But it's, 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 it was a crazy week. It was a crazy week. And, uh, but, you know, we, we just celebrated. Uh, uh, this is our first show after New Year's, is it? Yes. Yeah, and uh, there's a lot of stuff going on in our city. Uh, but I always think, you know, people ask me uh, over the New Year's weekend, they said, Manny, what did you do for New Year's Eve? And I, I gave them my uh, answer, you know, New Year's Eve is for amateurs, if you ask me. And it's always been Right, that I've way. heard that. Yeah. Uh, but I must say, seeing the amount of idiots in the French Quarter uh, on New Year's Eve uh, spreading the virus around, uh, I feel bad for you, Renee, because... I don't think you're going to be able to play a gig until maybe uh, August in the city. Yeah, yeah, um, I, I, it's I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't doubt that, Manny. The way the way things are going, yes, we have. Uh, you know, we're going back to phase one as right. of tomorrow. So going yeah. back to prohibited uh, prohibition of gatherings and uh, you know twenty five percent capacity, and it's because the cases are going up and. Yeah, other places in the country, it's the highest it's ever been. They have zero percent uh, ICU yeah. uh, capacity in these these cities. Yeah, but also on New Year's Eve, on New Year's Eve, our our, our president uh, had his New Year's Eve party at Mar Lago in Florida. Right, and I don't know if you read about that, but uh, he had Vanilla Ice was one of the big stars that played the his New Year's Eve gig. 
And huh. I was, uh, yeah, Vanilla Ice. And you know, also who was a performer at his New Year's Eve gig was Who's Mike that? Love of the Beach Boys. Wow. Mike okay. Love. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. When I read this, I, 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 I came to one conclusion. My hatred for Mike Love even deepened more. Because I can't yeah. stand the <laughs> guy, you know. You know, the guy is right in the back of uh, Brian Wilson for so long. And, uh, and he, remember in the early 80s, he played a Reagan concert as the Beach Boys where Brian Wilson said, I'm not, not part of this. And he did that. So uh, I, I saw that Mike Love uh, played this New Year's Eve gig for Trump. And it just uh, makes my hate for him even deeper. You know, sure, but, uh, sure. No, yeah. well, that that makes sense. I mean, I think they were, you know, Mike Love is eminently hateable. You know, the, the, he's uh, he's an easy target. But I, I, I'm not surprised that that uh, Trump was, you know, the that those two are hooked up at all. Yeah, and and Vanilla Ice, who. Uh, yeah, that's know. that's quite a uh, triumvirate there. Well, if, he needs a gig. Any gig he can get, he'll take it. You know. But, true. Uh, true. True. You know. But listen, speaking of likes and stuff like that, um, okay. over the Christmas, I wanted to talk about this last week, but I didn't get a chance. But over the Christmas holidays, you know, um, I don't know if you get this. You know, people send uh, uh, holiday greeting cards, you know, either through the mail. And now it's so much easier to do it through the social networking. But um, right. um, I saw that a, uh, a friend of my daughter's family, who, who I'm still in touch with after all these years, because they started kindergarten together, they sent out a Christmas or holiday greeting via the, uh, the Facebook. And I saw mm. it. And I looked at it. And I said, oh, that's very nice and stuff like that. That's very nice. And then it just so happened, like two days later, um, I happened to bump in to the mother of this family at the supermarket. And I okay. said, um, oh, hey, how you doing? And stuff like that. I, and I mentioned that I happened to see their holiday greeting via the Facebook and how much I liked it. And then she said to me, well, did you like it? That means did I click on that button that said like? And right. I said, I don't think I did. And she got all bent out of shape about it. You know, it's like, well, why didn't you like it? Well, I did like it, but I just didn't click on the button saying that I like it. And I noticed that she had like over 200 likes already. So what difference is my like going to be? But, you know, it's, it's, it's typical. You know, it was weird because it was like, well, I liked it, but I didn't click and say I liked it. So, um right. She left, and uh, I don't think we're friends anymore. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> she, 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 she unfriended you from Facebook? I, well, unfriended uh, my family. I have a family. family. Yes, that kind of right. thing. But it's, it right, seems right, so right. weird. It's like, okay, I liked it, but I didn't you know, click yes. on the button that said like. So what's right. the difference? Yes, it's it's an al it's an alternative reality where they have uh, rules. In fact, when I when I got on it to to when we first started the podcast, I had to ask someone, "How does this work? How do you behave on here?" You know, and they said, "Well, they kind of threw out the some of the the 
guidelines or rules of thumb. But yes, I guess that people are fighting for for every uh, every like and every acknowledgement. It's uh, gives them a. Well, it kind of reminded um, me of like a couple boost. years ago, where um, I think we talked about this on the show, um, where um, I I kind of just said, you know, being Manny Chevrolet, when I was asked if I was going to go to that bar mitzvah. And I said, well, right. are, are there going to be any Jews there? Because that's, that's right. the thing, you know. But anyway, I, it was very strange, and uh, I'll probably never see this person again, so who fucking cares? Anyway. Oh, well, you know. Yeah, um, anyway, what's going on with you, man? Oh, you know, really, really uh, not too much, you know. Just uh, have, have a, a gig lined up for an outdoor venue playing at the uh, – the Broadside, uh, it's you know the Broad Theater now has an outdoor venue, and yeah. uh, I wasn't sure if that was going to go on uh, with these new uh, these new Phase One guidelines, but I just got uh, got notification tonight that it's it's still a go. So, and that's with your band? Um, no, that's with uh, with Lynn Drury, the Lynn Drury band. Uh, okay, um, so we'll we'll be out there on the side, right in your neck of the woods. You could come by, man. Any Saturday uh, Saturday afternoon. Not gonna happen. Yeah, okay, <laughs> yeah. Not I'm not surprised. Yeah, right, right, right. Well, well, getting back to, I mean, on some local news, did you see associated with this uh, this the the whole insurrection yesterday that uh, the namesake of our local uh, grocery chain Rouse's was out there yeah. among the uh, the rioters uh, taking photographs of himself uh, in, in front of the mob in, in, on the, the Capitol grounds. I, I did see that. I did see that. And uh, uh, it caused a big backlash, a big, uh, well, big boycott good, yeah. rouses. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I would do it. The, 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 the rival franchise market is right across the street from the rouses. Right. But the only problem, I would go there because actually their market's a lot cleaner. I find it a lot cleaner and you get in and out faster and they have more products that I like. But I just can't find parking in that rival place. It's so hard to park there. So right, right. I, I, don't, I don't know if I'll, con- you know, I boycott it for a week or two. He doesn't give a fuck. What does he give a fuck? As, as someone pointed out, well, I'm not sure that uh – you know, Whole Foods or uh, CVS or Amazon or, you know, they had a whole list of things is are any better. You know, it's like if you're really going to going to try to uh, vet all of these companies, I think very quickly you'll find that that there's a lot of shit that you wouldn't agree with in the uh, upper management or, you know, general uh, right. lobbying. And, activity. You know, and, and they, you know, he's got, I'm sure the same uh, rival chains are paying these People there, you know, cashiers, box boys, stock boys, all minimum wage, and they're getting away with it. It's a sad, sad sure. thing. You know, sure, sure. But, uh, speaking of sad things, Renee, um, mm-hmm. um, uh, our, uh, my, my buddy, Alex Trebek, his last show will be broadcast tomorrow night. His last oh, show man. that he ever taped. End of an era. Yeah, and I found out so much about him over the New Year's weekend because I was laying in bed for the most part, just, you know, with my bedpan and, um, okay. And, um, IV, uh, watching the internet, but I found so much more about my hero 
that I, I, I have to share this. Did you know that um, Alex Trebek was a sweet freak? He loved sweets. And okay. his breakfast, he never, he didn't like breakfast. He liked sweet breakfasts. And do you know what he had for breakfast? Like every day for like the last 30 years, he had a, uh, a Snickers bar with a can of Pepsi. Wow. Which I find very strange, you know, but that was his breakfast. He loved it. He wow. loved that. Okay. And, um, he also, um, apparently, he was at a party in Malibu, like in the uh, late 80s. And on a Friday night, he got invited to this party. And being such a sweet freak that he was, that he didn't know who was the party was. He was just, him and his wife were invited to this party. And they went to this party in Malibu. And he loves his sweets. And he saw a tray of brownies. And he just started eating all these brownies. And then he was told later that it was, it was hash. There was hash brownies. Okay. And this was Friday night at this party. And apparently he fell asleep that Friday night, you know, intoxicated with the hash from the brownies. And he didn't wake up until like Monday morning. <laughs> you know, and he still had no okay. idea who hosted the party. You know, but that's my Alex. Right. He's a good guy. You know. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, he'll be sorely missed. Sorely missed, man. That's uh we should get to our guest here. Yeah, let's get to our guest. Very good, very good. So uh, our guest, uh, he's, uh, he's, uh, I've known him for a while. He's a terrific saxophone player, songwriter, per producer, a uh, founder of the legendary band Morphine, uh, now playing as Vapors of Morphine. Uh, without further ado, Mr. Dana Colley. Welcome, Dana. All right. Thank you very much. Very happy to be here. Thanks. I mean, where are you, Dana? Where are you? Uh, I am currently in the living room uh, of my home in East Somerville, Massachusetts. Oh, is that near Boston? It's uh, within uh, spitting distance. You can, <laughs> you can swing a rat, and you'll you can you can hit it. All right. Yeah, I can see Boston from my neighborhood from my window nice nice yeah. and uh so i was i was mentioning vapors of morphine um which is uh, a band made up of of you and and uh jeremy lyons who who spent a lot of time down in new orleans and uh was the original drummer from morphine uh jerome dupree but now you have a uh, another fella tom airy playing with you that's right yep and, exactly and you were saying you and you were saying that uh, you guys actually have a, a new record coming out uh, this this year. We do, yeah. It's going to come out on Schnitzel Records in uh, the UK and uh, be available uh, worldwide, hopefully. And it's called Fear and Fantasy. Yeah, we're Excellent. pretty excited. It's uh, you know, uh, it's been it's been in the can for some time, and we've been working on it for way too long. Yeah, and you know that how that is, and it gets to a point where, uh, you know, how what do we what do we do with these recordings? What do we do with this project? And uh, you know, the idea of just putting it out, um, either a streaming, you know, format or or you know, CDs don't seem to make much sense. So the idea of like, what do we do with it? 
How does it come out? Now, are these recordings from the original lineup? No, these are these are new recordings uh, okay. with, with the new lineup. And okay. one side features Jerome Dupree on drums, and the flip side features uh, Tom on drums, and two, done in two different studios. Well, now it's. I, I think it's remarkable how, uh, you know, we'll, we'll we'll maybe we should start with with morphine. So you 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 originally started you and Mark Sandman, uh, great late great singer, uh, two string slide bass player, um, songwriter, and and, uh, and Jerome Dupree, the drummer, uh, started this band. Start, started morphine back in in what, like the late 80s, early 90s? Yeah, 1990, I think, is the earliest uh, that we can date back. Okay. And now, I, I first met Mark uh, when, when my band, the Iguanas, played Johnny D's, and I guess Mark knew uh, Derek Houston, who Derek seems to know everybody, but so... So Derek introduced me to Mark, and Mark was there uh, listening to the iguanas, and then he and I hung out and, and chatted that, that evening, and you know we're kind of kind of fast friends, but it really didn't go beyond that. But then uh, a year or so later, a couple of years later, uh, I guess Mark had gotten my number from Kelly Keller, who was living in Boston. You you were friends yeah. with Kelly Keller up there? Uh, I wasn't as close, but I, I knew her. She was sort of a friends of friends. Right. And Kelly always uh, prided herself on on connecting people and seeing, you know, kind of uh, curating friendships and or professional associations. She'd f meet two people that she likes. Go, you know, you, you'd get along with this person. And and I think she kind of did that with with me and you guys. And you were coming to play New Orleans and either she called me and gave me Mark's number or, or gave Mark my number and said, call Renee. And I think yeah. Mark must have said, Oh yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I met Renee before. So y'all came down. I wound up taking y'all around town and, uh, spent a lot of time uh, over the next couple of days together. And that was kind of the beginning of, of again, a fast friendship. That's, uh, you know, and, uh, so so what a great band yeah. we were uh, we were uh, just so over, over so overwhelmed and you know so to i mean everybody's heard morphine but it, it was such a revolutionary concept that you describe yourself you'd say uh low rock or uh noir rock and so you had uh mostly baritone saxophone uh two string slide bass uh with mark Mark's uh, baritone vocal and then drums and just a ton of space and it, really it's remarkable the way you guys like use dynamics and kind of reframe the the dynamic landscape to where uh, you can make something powerful without being overwhelming well that's that's very thoughtful and, and kind of you to put it in that light, um, I, you know, I, from where we were coming from, this is, this is sort of what we, this, these are the instruments that we had that we could play, you know, and uh, I think Mark had a pretty good idea of, of what he wanted to do with his writing and uh, the idea of simplicity and stripping things down really sort of um, helped in, in getting his point across. So I think the more space that we had that was the better suited for, for 
delivering the song and delivering the idea. But um, yeah, but getting back to what you were saying earlier about our first trip to New Orleans, and that that stands out in my mind as uh, you know, like one of the highlights of my life and musical life was coming to New Orleans and feeling for the first time uh, what a what a real music town could be like there like none other like nowhere else in the world and spending time with you and yeah we played a howlin wolf i'm pretty sure i think we played howlin wolf it right. was packed out and i just i remember going to see, i think we went to see you guys maybe with treat or right before morphine came to town i think we went to see you guys at the rock and bowl does that sound right okay the, yes uh, yeah yes absolutely okay so we had actually seen you guys play at before we had come down to play and so I think we had a had we'd met previous to that. So, okay, I, I just right. remember the vibe in New Orleans as being like just just blew my socks off, and it's always sort of uh, it's always re- resonated as a as a sacred place in my heart for various reasons and nice. for other reasons that continue. Just a quick story, just to let you you know, you mentioned mm-hmm. Jeremy and Jeremy being uh, Jeremy Lyons being a, a, a New Orleans expat. Uh, although he, right. would, he, he would leap at the opportunity of coming back, believe me. Uh, yeah. He left in 2005 after Katrina. He came up to Cambridge and we had kind of, he was looking for a place to record and kind of get immersed into the music world up here. And a friend of a friend put him in touch with me and we invited him over to Mark's studio with Mark, obviously he, he passed away in 99, but we maintained his loft space as high and dry uh, up till 2008. Myself, Billy okay. Conway, and Andrew Mazzoni. So 2005, Jeremy comes up to Cambridge looking for a place to, you know, put some musical roots down. And uh, he comes over to the studio and I put up two microphones and he records like 33 songs just sitting there with his guitar and his dobro and I think his banjo. Uh-huh. And I was like, holy mackerel, you know, and then we started getting to talking about New Orleans and all this. And I had told him about, uh, I'd kept a journal, um, most of my travels with morphine. And I had written about a band, a busking, a band that was busking in Jackson Square. And I had written, I read it to Jeremy and the description. And he said, that's, that's my band you're talking about, you know, <laughs> with, with Augie and, and Lisa, Washboard Lisa, uh-huh. and uh, a bunch of other guys whose names I'm, I'm forgetting, but um, they were called the, uh, oh, Jeremy, help me out for it. Uh, the Big Nor, no. Oh, damn it. Uh, I may have to call for a, for a lifeline for that one, but. Right, right, anyway, right. It's a story. Anyway, I told him about his band. He's, he's reading uh-huh. about it. And I said, look, I have a, I have a photo of, of the band. Uh, and uh, I showed him the photo and we look at it closer. And there, there he is. There's Jeremy in the photo that has been pasted in my book. And he said, you know, he said, wow, wait a minute. Tomorrow I'm going to show you something. He went home, he came back and he had uh, the identical Polaroid that I had, I had taken at the time and threw into the, their case because I didn't have any money. So I just threw him a full Polaroid of their band in the case. He kept the Polaroid. So he had the match. I had one in my book and he had one that he had saved and we didn't know each other at the time. Yeah. Wow. So 
I hope that. I hope. Wow, that, man, that's that was so crazy. Like, some kind of uh, mystical force happening there. Absolutely, man. You know, your your saxophone playing and and just the 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 construction of that band. Now you were saying it. This was it wasn't any kind of. Uh, you know, construction that you guys said, well, it should be like this. It was, it kind of grew out of like that Cambridge experimental music scene that, that y'all had there. I mean, were y'all in another band before that? The Hypnosonics, was that? Well, the Hypnosonics was sort of a side band that Mark had um, when he uh, would get off the road and he would, you know, he had Mike Rivard on bass, Russ Gershon from either orchestra, Tom Halter on trumpet. Mm-hmm. Um, and just a way to kind of have some fun and and mark played guitar in oregon and worked on sort of a different take on songs and it um very kind of funk based almost james brown groove elements to it okay and uh it, it mark's idea was that this was a secret band and that nobody you know um nobody should know or hear about it but there's a record coming out uh as well uh in the next year okay i just called my oh, cool. my uh my lifeline jeremy's uh, uh-huh. busking band was called the big mess blues band okay anyway so there you were documenting the, it and uh yes you, you have have the matching polaroids uh of yeah. to to commemorate the 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 meeting yeah it was yeah and and to think that okay we never talked at the time and that years later we would converge uh, in Sandman's space and put it all together, which is kind of floors me still to this day. So you call yourselves morphine. You call yourselves morphine. Are you guys uh, into drugs? Uh, that's a good question. I'm glad you asked that. Um, we, we kind of more interested in the idea, uh, sort of the Greek mythology, the, you know, the, uh, Morpheus, God of Dreams, and the kind of way that music can can be intoxicating, and I think uh, also interested in in sort of the kind of uh, hypocrisy that is around drugs in the culture. You know, uh, where some drugs are acceptable and others aren't, and you know, some things are recognized as addictive and others aren't. You know, depending upon what that is, and the need for drugs, and the and and why is it? What is it about human nature that uh, kind of uh, it's always looking to change their existence their their state of mind what makes what drives us to do that pain is what drives you to do it yeah it's all about pain brother sure you know so let me ask you something you're from uh, uh massachusetts are you a celtics fan I am a Celtics fan. Can we Fuck still- you then, man, cuz right. I'm okay. a Lakers fan. <laughs> Let it out. Let it out. I'm a Lakers <laughs> fan, man. Better out than okay, in. Well, yeah. Okay. Good. What else you got? What else you got? Well, uh, uh, I'm a Dodger okay. fan, man. <laughs> okay. And I'm a fucking Raiders fan, and fucking Tom Brady is the fucking piece of shit of the earth. Well, I've never, I never loved the Patriots, so you can't hurt me there. Okay, um, good. Uh, I don't want to hurt you there. No, you can't get me there. You know. Although we could go back to. Um, the days with the Raiders, where where we weren't too we weren't too uh, fond of each other due to a uh, the uh, Stingley incident. That's yeah. football. That's when yeah. football was football, yeah. man. Yeah. That's when you paralyze players. You know. Yeah, that one. 
that one. Uh, that one stings, right? Yeah. That one stingly. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, it's, uh-huh. it's, yeah, that resonated with me, I guess, I, for various reasons, but that was pretty, that was pretty hard. But uh, the Celtics are looking mm. good this year, I have to say. They have, they have some good young talent, uh, and uh, they're fun to watch so far, even in a bubble. Yeah, and they got more black players and white players than usual, right? Well, they've always had black players. They've had black coaches. Uh, so, you know, th- th- I think the stigma that may be attached to Boston as being racist is a little bit... Uh, well, I've been to Boston twice in my life, both times when I was touring with my band. And uh, both times I was just in a bar by my, uh, with my band and fucking, fucking Boston fucking white guys just wanted to fight. Why is that? I it, wish it, I it, was, it, was like, it was like the Star Wars scene where it's like, I don't like the way you look. I don't like the way your friend looks. <laughs> and sorry. they just wanted to fight. Uh, they weren't, they weren't, it wasn't my Can't blame neighborhood, them. or it might have been my neighborhood, but it wasn't my friends, and uh, certainly... Uh, oh, no, I'm not saying that, but I mean... Uh, I don't know what that behavior, I think you can find it almost anywhere, if you, if you find white men converging in one spot, you will find that uh, energy uh, sometimes yeah, will, will happen. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. DC, man, you can find it out there. Holy cow. No, D.C. was people from all over the country on D.C. It wasn't right. D.C. Right. So don't put D.C. down, Renee. But no, you'll find them in D.C., the, the white men that you'll find in D.C. right now. Yes, that's what I was talking about, Manny. Um, well, Mark's instrument that he was, that he was playing in, in uh, Morphine, that two-string slide bass, um, I, besides everything else Mark was doing, he was also an inventor. So he, he, he came up with that idea himself and, and kind of created a whole new thing, a whole new, new voice. And, uh, you know, visiting up there, he would show me things. And like another invention was the tritar uh, yep. guitar that uh, was actually wound up being the whole foundation for that band, uh, the Presidents of the United States of America, who right. had... Right, right, right. Uh, uh, several hit records just playing those those tritar uh you know stringed inventions of of marks well chris Ballou, the singer uh and mark were both very singer and bass player i should say they played the, the three-string bass and we're really close friends and uh chris was a roommate of uh marks for a while and they had a group together called super group and uh-huh. uh they, they. That's sort of when Mark was developing some of those instruments. So Chris was sort of uh, around for that, and I think he picked up on it too. And he he took a different approach, um, where Mark brought the the strings up using raising the nut, bringing the strings up to create more of a slide uh, capability. Um, I think right. uh, Chris went for more of a lower slung type of feel, where he could really you know use the fretboard and and really kind of get really loose and goosey on the on the fretboard itself which is uh-huh. a different sound but it's with the, using three strings kind of limits the approach but he would come up with these amazing amazing riffs you know and mark and he would get together with his you know and they would they do their gigs they call themselves supergroup and show up without a, any songs prepared and just take requests for song titles from the audience and people would shout out different uh, you know things off the top of their head they would 
you know, pick one that they liked and then write a song about that on the spot. It was pretty, it was like uh, tightrope walking. Right, right. Now, do you come from a musical family? Do you come from a musical family? Uh, not, not in particular, no. Uh, my dad um, loves music, and he's an artist and a painter and always had uh, music going in the house. Um, but I have friends of mine uh, that I grew up with who were very musical, so I was exposed to a lot of music in, in my early days. So as a teenager or a young kid, who were you listening to on the radio? Oh, well, I think my earliest musical memory might be the Beatles. You know, I want to hold my I want to hold your hand and hearing that on the radio, being pretty young and thinking like like aliens had had uh, somehow got inside uh, the dashboard, you know, because their voices (sighs) just I just did not they did not seem human. And but I remember just really kind of being riveted by that sound. And, you know, growing up, uh, I've always, my ears have always been open to, to music. I think the earliest, one of the earlier influences was Peter and the Wolf, like a lot of kids, you know, of my generation. Mm. When they heard that soundtrack, it really opened up their minds to, uh, to listening in different ways and listening to be able to identify instruments, individual instruments, and be able to make, you know, identify them. So you play more than one instrument? I I play primarily saxophone, but I love to get sounds out of almost anything I can pick up and find, you know. So I love guitars. I love uh, keyboards just because it's so immediate. But the saxophone is probably the one that I've spent the most time with. And did they offer that to you in school? Exactly, yeah. We We had a music program where I grew up, and they offer, they start you off in third grade with the recorders. They're called the tonettes, and you have this huge choir of kids playing this god awful instrument at the top of their lungs. And then right. if you survive that, then you get to go to the next phase and you can select the band instrument. So I picked clarinet because my next door neighbor was playing clarinet. That's the only reason. And uh, yeah. and you were in love with her? With the clarinet? <laughs> with, with my neighbor? Uh, <laughs> no, is it, well, he was a good friend, Wayne Caswell, but I, I guess I loved him. But, uh, you know, it was as friends do, you know. But anyway, I, right. I thought it was cool that he played clarinet. Um, and uh, so that influenced me to pick it up, and I stuck with it. And then, then I heard the high school jazz band playing at an assembly and realized that I wanted to be in the jazz band, but had to, then would need to make a transition to saxophone. And in seventh grade, I made this transition to sax and stuck with that through high school and then um, kind of just tagged along with me. After When I left high school, I went to Boston and went to Mass College of Art and hung out there. And there's a lot of stuff going on sonically, musically, a lot of performance stuff going on, a lot of bars, a lot of bands. So it was a pretty vibrant time to be in Boston in the early 80s. And, now, were you, know, you studying I, yeah. music at uh, at at uh, the 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 College of Art? I wasn't. I was. I was sort of. I was. I I didn't know what I was doing, to be honest. Yeah. I just got out of high school and uh, really didn't know what to do. Um, my dad, as I said, was a painter, is a painter, and a cartoonist. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll go into art, and we could start a design company or something like that. And I got into the art school and immediately did not want anything to do with design sort of went through all the different programs into painting 
and then wound up in a performance art program called Studio for Interrelated Media, which was incredible because you could basically, you know, pursue any anything that you were interested in. And, and as long as you presented a certain amount of work, you could go and do anything. You could do film, you could do sound, you could do movement, you could do lighting, you could do stagecraft. So I got into recording um, there at that point. Uh, there was a little recording um, studio up on the up on up this staircase that had like a couple of real trail machines and a couple of four track cassette machines which were pretty new at the time and mm -hmm. had an ARP sixteen hundred, which was like this computer sequencer that you 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 know physically take um, patch cables and move around to create different patterns and different sequences and uh -huh. and we would make these tape loops that would go down the down the stairwell you know and just and just record all kinds of wacky stuff on it and just loop it till you know they threw us out of the building right and so you're you're playing saxophone at that time and studying who who are you listening to as far as saxophone players or or are you are you are you basing your because you like in morphine you have kind of a like a, a even though it's a rock band your playing is very hard bop or post bop it's very jazz influenced uh and and wow well that's that's incredible i mean i to be honest um I, I, I hear a lot of my, I heard of myself developing when I listened to the early morphine stuff. I initially, I, you know, I listened to a lot of guitar players. I, you know, Hendrix, of course, growing up in the seventies, Hendrix, uh, the Allman brothers, you know, Albert King, you know, um, ZZ Top, you know, all these guys were Jeff Beck. Frank Zappa. I, you feel like your your saxophone playing was was as much based on uh, those kind of guitar influences as as any horn players. I, you know, that's what I really was listening to, and 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 that was my desire was to somehow play music that was of my time. You know, but I had, I got stuck with the saxophone. I should have, you know, if I had only learned guitar. But so you know, when when morphine came together, um, it gave me an opportunity to kind of do a role that I'd been, you know, dreaming of having in terms of an instrument like the saxophone and to be able to create a role that was not just about a solo, not just about, you know, you know, playing these amazing riffs, but being a part of a bed of a sound that propels the whole song along. And that, that to me was really what I was trying to do. And the baritone really lent itself to that as well in the more rhythmic and, and more, you know, lower uh, region. Right, you guys are kind of sharing the bass duties between the bass and the and the barry. Yeah, sure, and, and sometimes unison, sometimes sort of counter, sometimes you know it, the baritone can go up and help out the voice, or you know, like you were saying earlier, there's just all this space that we could we found that when it wasn't being covered by a, you know a chordal instrument, it opened up uh, all of these variance variances between the three you know, elements, the drums, Mark's voice, the bass, well, four elements and saxophone. But I mean, I also love other, you know, horn players that growing up and learning and hearing, you know, Coltrane and hearing, you know, um, uh, you know, Coltrane and Hendrix were to me were like the, with a the yin and yang of, of, of whatever was, could be possibly, you know, emoted on any instrument. Right. And, right. You know, well, you know, I like I, I love your tone. You have such such a buttery, relaxed tone, and and then I'm, I'm 
at the same time you're playing uh, in morphine, you're playing all these ostinato patterns that just, you know, you're playing through the whole song. You're playing every measure. And like if you weren't relaxed doing that, you'd blow yourself out after one song. You know, you, you, right, you obviously right, right. have to have like a lot of control and, and just to be able to play that much. You know, horn players are used to playing a whole bunch and then they rest. Right. <laughs> and then they play, right. you know, you never rest in that band. Well, it's I was younger then too, so you know it was easier to, okay. to do it. But you know, I think. Now, that, did I see you play jazz fest once? You may have with Vapors. With James Singleton. Um, no, no, oh? no, no. If it, we had, we sort of. What did we do? We did Voodoo Fest, and oh. we did we did the Blues Tent at uh, not Jazz Fest, but the Blues Tent. Uh, when was that? I think that was out sort of on the other either side of the jazz jazz fest we did like a, a an off fest and that was morphine or was that that was that was probably members of morphine at that point members of yeah. morphine, which is essentially vapors of morphine we've uh, okay. we've worked with different names right, right. just to keep one step ahead of the law you know sure sure yeah yeah um, well, Manny, I'm looking at my drink. Uh, does this seem like a good time to take a little break? All right. So, so listen, man. We, we'll take a break. The nation knows what to do. They know what to do. We'll be right back. Get your libation, and we'll be right back. Don't worry, I'm not looking at you. Gorgeous, dressed in blue. Don't worry, I'm not looking at you. Gorgeous and dressed in blue I know what drives you crazy When I pretend you don't exist When I like to lean in close And run my hands against your lips Though we haven't even spoken Still a senses of rapport So whisper me your number I'll call you up at home Whisper me your number Call you up at home Don't worry, I'm not looking at you Back with Mr. Manny Chevrolet. I am Renee Coman. Back with our guest, Mr. Dana Colley. Now, Dana, we have a terrific uh, product that we've been associated with for uh, a while now. It's been many months. Uh, so, Manny, why don't you go ahead and tell Dana about this terrific product? Dana, are you listening? Oh, I'm listening, Manny. All right. I'm going to tell you about this great product that been, we've been associated with for about six, seven months now. It's called the Velo Bar. Velo, Velo Bar. Mm -hmm. it's, a, uh, it's a healthy protein bar that fills you up and calms you down. But the most perfect thing about this bar is that it's got 25 milligrams of CBD per bar. Mm -hmm. CBD, that's what the kids are doing now, the CBD. Oh, yeah. 
You know, back in yeah. our day, we were just getting dime bags. Remember that? I do. Sure. And uh, they're about yeah. two fingers worth. Yeah, two, three fingers, <laughs> you know, and they'd cheat you every once in a while. It depends on who was the, fi- how big the fingers were. Did you ever get you oregano? Know? Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, this is a great bar. It's a plant-based protein bar made up of healthy, super food ingredients like pumpkin seeds, hemp hearts, and chia seeds. The most important thing, it has 25 milligrams of CBD. And uh, Dana, it's a stress relief bar. It's perfect for breakfast. It's perfect for after a workout or doing yard work. I don't know what you do to stay in shape. I, I scoop no up idea. dog poop mostly. Yeah, oh, so you're a dog walker. Uh, well, I... Well, no, you just go around town scooping up other people's poop. If I see poop, you know, I'm on. Yeah, if you see poop, you okay. scoop it up. I'm there. All right. Okay. But right now, Dana, if you go to VelobarCBD.com and check out these two great flavors. All uh, right, I'll be right dark- back. I'm going to go there. <laughs> well, well, no, not right now. Wait, after the Not show. right now. But no, you check out this website, VelobarCBD.com, and check out the two great flavors, dark chocolate and peanut butter. Which do you prefer? I like the dark chocolate. In fact, I just got my uh, next shipment. Uh, uh, I ordered a holiday uh, during the New Year's Eve, a uh, New Year's Day special offer, Renee. Remember that was going on? Yes, yes, for one yeah, day only. I, I, yeah, I ordered it, and I got I got. I got tons of it. Anyway. Okay. Are you eating it or smoking it? <laughs> I'm doing both, man. Choking on it. Yeah. Uh, but right now, Dana, go to uh, VeloBarCBD.com. But not right now. And uh, use the TroubledMen15 promo code, and you'll get 15% off your order and free shipping. That's so great. check it out. I check it out. Hot tip. Yeah. Yes. All right. You yes. seem like a guy who needs it. I could oh, use well. anything I yeah. can get. I'll tell you. You know, if I if I don't eat it, I can just rub it on my sore muscles. Sure. Sure. Yes. We're all we're all freaking out. As always, if you want to support the Troubleman podcast directly, you can jump on that PayPal link and uh, and uh, buy us a cocktail or uh, you know uh, contribute to the uh, operating costs of of all this terrific content. These terrific guests like Mr. Dana Cauley from Vapors of Morphine. So just to, uh, to retrace uh, Morphine's meteoric rise, you guys put out like five terrific studio records in, in under 10 years. I'm looking at, the, at the, the productivity of it. It's like the first one comes out in 92, then 93, then 95, then 97. And then 2000 is you've recorded your the record the night, and over the course of this you start off on Ryko disc. Uh, by the second record, you guys are having hit records, um, MTV band, uh, Beavis and Butthead. It's it's got to be a heady time there. You guys are traveling all over the world. Yeah, no, it 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 definitely uh, it was it was a wave for sure. And, uh, and we were working, you know, nine months of the year and, uh, tra- all over the world, uh, you know, would basically do the circle, go across the U S you know, Japan, Australia, then Europe and, uh, come back, lick our wounds for a little bit and then repeat it. It was, uh, you know, it's 
the idea of like striking when the iron's hot, it was, uh, it was really hard to, to say no to anything because, uh, we just never knew when it, when it was going to start. Now, do you think the Japanese just love everything American? Well, they were certainly very hospitable to us and, and I would, I don't know about everything. I'm not sure how discerning they are in terms of, you know, what their, what makes their culture, uh, because I've known a lot of American artists and, and British artists who uh, they go to Japan and, and the kids there, they, ju they just eat it up. But e they, don't, they don't even listen to the music. They just, you're there and they eat it up. Well, I mean, they, they would, we had a great, great experience in Japan. I, it, it was uh, just like you mentioned. I mean, we you know, were met with, by fans at the airport and that knew that we were coming and at the hotel and we had, you know, fans sending us letters and, you know, it was the first time where we felt like the Beatles in a way, you know, like that sense of like, wow. uh, you know, being other and uh, the culture, we just loved every aspect of it. They're incredibly polite and, and receptive in the audiences when the song would end, you could hear a pin drop and then, when it was appropriate, everyone applauded as one. As and uh, it was a really beautiful experience to, to be able to play there. So you, the, you record this terrific record, "The Night," and y'all are on tour. And before the record can come out, Mark passes away on tour. It had to be tremendous shock, man. I mean, it was. I remember the day it happened. I'm sure you know it's. it's what what a loss, man! What a what a uh, you know in, incredible uh, you know. Geez, yeah. I, I can't yeah, yeah, even I imagine, know. man. It's like uh, yeah. I mean, it's something you think about every day. You know, it's like uh, right. certainly a trauma that um, that both Billy and I and the crew will always carry with us. You know, um, and it certainly was something that just I did not see coming. I don't think anyone really did. Um, yeah, and, man. You know, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a harsh awakening to uh, how you know fragile life is, and uh, and just to try to make as much of every day as you can, and let the people you know that you love them, you know, and, and let them know every day. Don't ever, don't ever take a, a second to think about it. Just. Uh, let people know that matter to you. Let them know. So on that note, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you can't yeah. take any of that for granted, man. And, no. well, I know I, 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 I saw y'all. So after that, you still had this record that was coming out, and, you know, you want to honor the music and the, the legacy and, and, and all the work that had gone into it. So you guys did a, a really valiant uh, thing, I thought. I... I you you had the the orchestra morphine that you you went out and supported that record and you you guys played the house of blues here i i saw that show it was uh you and 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 uh billy conway i believe was y'all's drummer yeah. at, uh, at at that point we had, and we had and, both uh, billy and jerome okay and then you yeah. had a, a whole bunch of other um, associates from from the Boston area that had played with with Mark and 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 you guys played all the music from the record and 
that was kind of the, the, the beginning of the idea that this is something that transcends even, even Mark's presence. I mean, Mark had such a large presence, it, it, it transcends his, even his corporeal life, you know? Yeah. Wow. Well, that was, uh, I, well, I think if we could set out and hope to have done that, then we would have been thought, thought we succeeded because, you know, I think that, that what mattered to us at the time was to get this music out there and to have it be heard by a live audience because um, it really hadn't been fleshed out in terms of a live uh, approach in terms of the whole record front to back. It had been a pretty hard thing. That's, yeah. that's a record that, that had the, the, the sonic landscape was, was really uh, getting more sophisticated all the time. You know, you have strings on that record i mean not not uh yeah. you know montavani strings but but the 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 it's a very richly textured record you know mark is playing more organ um you know you still have the and one thing i, I was going to say before it's so interesting to have a, a rock band and like on half of the songs the drummer is playing brushes yeah. <laughs> i love it <laughs> i know well there you go jerome if he could play brushes every night and only that he'd be very happy I was going to mm -hmm. say, Mark yeah. always liked to kind of impose limitations on any musician who played just to see, just to have them not depend on their own kind of, uh, you know, cliches that they might go to. And uh, for one tour, he asked that uh, Billy play without any cymbals. So he did, had to do uh -huh. the whole tour without any, any, any cymbals except for his hi-hat. And so, wow. I mean, that's, that. The idea of like stripping things down was constantly being re, you know, visited. And you were telling me I was talking to you one time about about Mark's writing and and how you know succinct his writing is, and and you were telling me that well actually Mark spent a lot of time on editing and 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 yeah. chipping away and and yeah he had um, just folders of papers and he would each song would have at least, you know, 10 to 15 pages stapled together where, you know, he's, he has an idea he's working on. He strips away half of it and starts over and reworks things, and reworks and reworks it and keeps, keeps you know, chipping away and, and seeing what he can lose until he get it to, can get it to its most, you know, streamlined uh, form. And that, that was true for most of the songs that, especially on that on the night I think he really he really worked hard on trying to get get those songs the way he envisioned them in the aftermath of, of that tour uh, it's what time to figure out where where we go from here and 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 you want to keep playing music and uh, I know you you, you guys have uh, several groups, kind of transitional groups between morphine and what winds up being vapors of morphine. You have the the Twine Men, which is uh, sort of a, a transitional stage, yep. and then ever expanding elastic waistband. Again, Very kind good. of uh, yeah. catchy name. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Another yeah. catchy name. But but. But then you guys meet meet Jeremy and Jeremy Lyons uh, and uh, start playing with him. 
and then an opportunity comes 10 years after that that uh, last gig in Italy to to go back and and play um, that that same festival in Italy. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. and you go back with with you and and is it Jerome at that time? Yep, Jerome and Jeremy. And Jeremy and you guys go and and that's is that uh, vapors of morphine and and at that, that point uh, it, it essentially yes because that's what we ended up calling ourselves but it, initially um, just so that we could get the point across we would we used the the name members of morphine and that's what right. we went as at that for that it was a fifth anniversary uh, of, of Mark's passing the following okay. year we actually we actually brought. Uh, we brought uh, orchestra morphine back the, the following year after Mark died to the festival, the same festival, and oh, okay. uh, brought the night to the stage to the on on the same spot where he passed away. Wow! And then we came back five years later with a trio. Oh, five. Okay. And it it really is remarkable how uh, you know how it's it's it so much has the essence of all that so so then like in 2016 you guys make a a, a vapors of morphine record and it's uh yeah yeah the the spirit is all there and i thought it was very cool you guys covered two eno songs and including babies on fire which is you know one of my favorites that was one of my favorites too yeah that has jeff allison on drums for that particular song Okay. We uh, we played a, a little pub here in Cambridge called Atwood's Tavern, and we were doing we were playing every Wednesday, and then we we got bumped up to moving to Saturdays. We we had a residency for years and years, and we had different drummers kind of come in when Jerome couldn't make it. And Jeff Jeff Allison held down the the drum chair for a lot for a lot of the time when Jerome wasn't around to do it, and he's I'm happy that we got him on on that record. He's a great friend. And a great player. Uh, I miss that. I miss not being. You know, the, there was such a developmental uh, place for us to, to have a, a residency every week. You know, and uh, we'd work on things that would uh, eventually make it to record. But um, you know, that not having that uh, these days has been really kind of like missing a limb. You know. Sure. Sure. Well, yeah. Get getting to that. Um, so, so you were playing all the time, I mean, in, in, in Cambridge and then now nothing. Are you doing a lot of, uh, I know, uh, all the, the woodcut artwork, wood prints, I mean, uh, print woodcut prints on the morphine records. That was all of your work. You do a lot of, uh, yeah, the three instruments that you see, the, uh, the triptych there, the bass drums and sax that was a, a lino print that I, I did some years ago that ended up making it on the record and ended up making a t-shirt out of it and I've uh, right. I still have the block print and I, I will from time to time someone will ask me for a print and I, I can I'll make them to order but uh, okay yeah it's, it's something I got into in the cold winter months up here and in, uh, in in the northeast you know it's nice to have something to carve or whittle with and uh, around the fire so I, I got into woodblock uh, printing uh, I think when I was at you know, I know in high school as it started at like making Christmas cards and then I started doing doodles and turning my doodles into uh, prints and kind of evolved from there 
Yeah, is that kind of growing out of your experience as the son of a of an artist, visual artist? I guess you could say that. I mean, his my dad's an amazing painter, and and his, you know, I've always grew up watching him draw, and seeing him turn a white page into this in this amazing caricature or portrait, or you know, he, he was always have it always have his pen out in a restaurant, so he kind of he loved to loose the trek, so he would always you know, find somebody in a cafe and, and draw them from afar and that sort of thing. So I always watched, always kind of mystified to see that white page turn into something, you know, and I would watch how his pen would move across the page and trying to figure out when it would start to take shape and, and be, be an image that was recognizable. And it was always coming from a different place than where my mind was going. It's a kind of a, like a, an animation coming to life. You think you had that had an impression on you, just in, oh, yeah. in terms of your musical, the way you approach recording, or, or you know, yeah, I sonic think so. I mean, art, you know. I think so. I think having an art background has helped just in terms of how you approach uh, the process, you know, whatever process that is. You know, it could be creating a painting, or it could be paint, writing a poem, or it could be writing a, recording a song, or recording a track. You know, once you recognize the, how processes work and how you work, um, you know, it's, it, you know, let's say you start with a sketch and your sketch, you know, there's elements of it that you like and there are elements that you'd like to have become better. And the same thing with a song or an idea that you, you have to allow yourself the freedom to sketch, right? So that you get the idea across for, as loosely and as freely as you can without, without over-editing. And then be able to take that and recognize where the value is and be able to translate that into something that's more refined. I think that that certainly has helped. Now, in the, the last week, I've been going back and listening to all the, the morphine records. And God, they're so beautiful, man. Your, your playing is so great. And the, the band just is so fully realized right from the, the first record. It's it's really seems to come out of nowhere and to be whole cloth, you know, and it's like it's a new thing. It's a new sonic environment that you guys just just threw up and there it was, you know, and like no one had ever heard that before, but wow, there it is. Now, but I'm listening, I'm going, God, what is this reminding me of? And I couldn't quite put my finger on it, and today it struck me, and I realized that it was... Uh, from Bowie's last record, Black Star, <laughs> th yeah. that record reminded me of you, particularly the song Lazarus. Has, oh, have, has, this, has, any, has anyone pointed this out to you before? Yeah, they ha I have had a few. I mean, a lot of people have actually contacted me when that first came out, wanted to know if I was, had recorded on the record. And uh, I, it was not me. I... I don't know the guy's name who did it, but I, I did right. hear it's, it. Right, it's, 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 it's Donnie McCaslin, I think is Donnie his name. McCaslin. Sorry, I don't know your name, Donnie McCaslin. I should. Uh, but, but So I was yeah. going to ask, was, do you know that Bowie was a fan? Is, did he ever reach out to you guys? Oh. Clearly, clearly this was, you know, who knows? it's too I mean, close. I don't know. I, don't th I mean, honestly, I think the terrain is, is not that, uh, you know, mysterious. I think anybody who especially like let's face it bowie could uh, absorb almost any genre or any type of uh, 
elements. Sure. That and he, that he's he, known for it. I mean, you yeah. can go through his records and say, well, this is his Anthony Newley period, or this is right. his Velvet Underground period, yeah. and he's, you know, this is his his uh, electronica period, you know? And yeah. uh, so just listening back in, in, in with that in mind, I'm thinking, oh, obviously Bowie was just really dug morphine and thought, ooh, I want to do something that I love the way that sounded. Oh, man. I would love it if that was the truth. Yeah. Even at the end of the track, the bass player is playing with a pick in kind of an upper register and doing like a, like, a, it's it's just, you need to revisit it, man. But Which is, yeah. again, not, it's not a, a ripoff, you know, no one's saying that, you know, but, but what a, what a terrific, uh, um, just, just. Well, full one could only hope. Or, yeah. One could only hope that if Bowie heard heard it, yeah, that would be amazing. But I I would I I would bet that it that it was just a an area of a sonic terrain that he was bound to you know utilize at some point. Pure coincidence. Okay. Yeah, well, just just it's, it's out there. It's the it's just pulling from the universe. Like, sure. Like anything, you know. So Dana, to wrapping up. Uh, yeah. uh, Vapors of Morphine has this new record coming out, and I saw you guys actually have uh, dates booked in February. Live dates. Date. Date. Uh, date uh. A date. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> one thing at a time. Yes, it, and it will be the first time we've played in uh, over well almost a year, and uh, so that should be interesting. I'm not even sure my mouth can is going to hold up. But do you think it'll actually happen? That is a really good question. It's yeah. this, there's this uh, there's this state of the in the union called New Hampshire, yeah, where they they seem to have a, an ability to uh, to flout uh, a lot of other laws that uh, places like Massachusetts have to adhere to. So you see a well, lot. Well, for your safety, for your safety, don't you think you should just like take it easy? I have been. You have children. You have a wife and family, right? No, honestly, I I I, I do, and I. And I will, and I have, and I, I, we won't be doing it unless it's absolutely, you know, safe. And they, they've been doing these uh, shows uh, over the summer, and and they've figured ways to, to keep it uh, socially distanced. So we're pretty confident that this is going to be one of those that this limited, uh, you know, limited uh, ticket sales and, you know, spacing and all that. So it's not going to be like a, like a super spreader. Good, well, good, good luck good. with that. I thank you. I, I, yes. I'll be interested to see how it comes out myself. Yeah. Right on. Right on. All right. Well, Dana, thank you so much for coming on the Trouble Men podcast, man. It's it's been too long, and uh, I can't wait till all this is over and we get to yeah. you know, get the iguanas back up there and see you guys and and have uh, vapors of morphine get back down to DBA. You know, New Orleans loves you guys. And, oh uh, man. I know what it means to miss New Orleans, that's for sure. All right, thank you, Dana. You've been, you've been fabulous. Thank Andy, you. It's been a pleasure talking with you. I, I look forward to meeting you in person. One day, it probably never will happen, but one day. I, I believe we'll do what we can to make it happen. All right, later. Later. The Trouble Men Podcast, we always like to say, uh, trouble never ends, but the struggle continues. Good night.
Yeah. 